Well, good morning. Happy wedding and baby weekend, I guess. A lot of stuff has happened this week. We have a new baby. Got two couples that got married. One in Mississippi. They're, they're not here. I don't know why. Um, but, uh, yeah, God is good. And God is growing his family in many different ways. And so we're excited about what he's doing in that midst. Let me pray for us again um, and just try to set our hearts on him as we um, enter into looking at his word this morning. But Father, we thank you uh, that you produce new life. Father, we thank you that you are the giver of life through Jesus. Father, I pray that Jesus will be made much of today as we look at your story. Father, we ask that your spirit would uh, move in our hearts and that you Um, would convict us, that you would call us to truth, that you would call us to a deeper love of you and affection of you. Father, pray that we would be changed because we've met with you today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're uh, we're starting a new series uh, that we're calling The Disciple-Making Life. And so throughout the summer, we're going to be taking and talking about what it actually means uh, to live the life of a disciple. Um, Which, by the way, is your calling as a believer. Jesus' final words to his followers were, Go and make disciples of every nation, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And so the idea is that if you're in Jesus Christ, if you've come to faith in Jesus, if you've come to the point in your life where, where you've said, I just can't do it anymore. I'm just like every other human that has ever walked this planet that continues to choose self-rule over God's rule. And no matter how hard I've tried, I can't do it. I can't live as the way God called me to live. I can't be holy on my own. I need a rescuer. I'm in need of Jesus. I need the work of the Passover lamb on the cross to cover the mess of my sin. If that's you, then the Bible says that God has actually recreated you And that you're a new creation. That he's taken you um, to be his. That he's taken you to be part of his family. um, So that you can do the work that he's always intended us to do. And that is to image him to the world around us. And to disciple others in, in imaging him. It's why we start every week. And Sarah mentioned this morning that we that we are the church. That we don't just go to church but we actually are the church. That The church is not an event. It's actually a people. It's the community of God. Likewise, mission is not an event. It's actually a lifestyle. Rather, it's the way that we live life all throughout the week. It's, it's that we're called to live in an ordinary life with gospel intentionality as disciples. And see, the idea is that when we actually truly understand that, when we truly realize that, we'll we'll begin to know that making disciples is not going to take place two hours a week on a Sunday morning. It's impossible for that to happen. It's impossible for that to be the totality of being and making disciples. It happens in the everyday, in the, in the mundane things of life, if you want to say it that way, in, in the repeated things, in the, in the getting up every morning, in the going to work, in the playing, in the eating, in the resting, in, in everyday life was where we work out the muscles of disciple-making. And so when we understand that the life of discipleship is not just for some people, it's not just for some believers, 
It's for all believers. And the reality is, we've said this before, that, that every believer is actually called into full-time paid ministry. It's not my job. It's not just Brad's job. It's every believer is called into full-time paid ministry. Now, God chooses to route our paychecks through different ways, but we're all called to the same thing. You see, God desires that, that if, if someone wanted to know what it looked like to be a disciple of Jesus who was an engineer, he would, he would take a look at you guys and he would say, this is what it looks like to live as a life of an engineer as who's a disciple of Jesus, and that's going to look different than an engineer who doesn't know Jesus. Or if they wanted to look at an artist and say, this is what the life of an artist looks like who knows Jesus, this is what that disciple looks like. Or if you wanted to look and say, this is what it looks like to be a mom or dad that loves Jesus and raises their kids to love Jesus. They would just take a look at one of you disciples in here and they would know this is what a disciple of Jesus is. And this is how you would raise your children and this is how you would love and care for one another. If they wanted to know what a single person looked like who lived the life of Jesus, what would that disciple look like? How would, how would they live? How would they, how would they interact with their, with their community around them? How would they interact as a boyfriend or a girlfriend? What would that look like? It's this idea that, that if you're going to know and, and see what a disciple looks like, you're going to need to see it in the everyday. It's not like people will just like show up to church on a, on a Sunday morning, like they go to the zoo, right? And like, I'm going to see a disciple today, and I'm going to view it, and all right, I got it. Like, it doesn't work that way. No, no one is going to know what a disciple looks like if they just show up for two hours. They may see a piece of it, but it, it makes itself play out in the everyday. And so this is what we're talking about when we say that we're his people, we're the church, that we're sent to the world to show that Jesus has actually changed our hearts, that he's made us anew, that we get to live out in a new identity in the everyday as his disciples. And so that was a big entry, but, but that's what we're going to talk about in this series. We're going to spin that out. We're going to talk about the implications of the gospel and how that gets worked out in the everyday things of life. Because the reality is that's what God has always wanted for his people to be about. It's what he created you for and what he recreated us to be, that we could be his image bearers. Now, how do I know that? How am I just not talking out of the top of my head? Because um, I might do that sometimes, right? How do I know that? How do you know that? We have to look at his story. That's where we're going to start today. We're going to start this series today. And we're going to look at the story found in the Bible. See, the idea is if we don't ground ourselves in the story, if we don't continually go back to his story found in the Bible to help us understand the world around us, instead of making disciples of God, we're going to make disciples of ourselves. Or we're going to make disciples of a broken culture. And we'll end up serving and living our lives based on a much lesser story than the amazing story of God. See, it's important for us to, to be able to... to to speak and to talk about the issues and the topics of our culture, but there's no way that we can actually understand them or speak into them on our own because our hearts get so intertwined and so um, mixed up with, with what we want to believe and what's popular and what people's opinions of us are. Um, and it gets so intertwined that we, that we, we can't do it unless unless we go back to God's story and see how he actually interprets our lives and our thoughts and our minds. 
See, the good news is that God did not just leave us here to try to figure it out on our own. He didn't say, go make disciples and then like, hope you do it. Hope you got it. He actually gave us the Bible. It's amazing, right? He gave us the story that actually defines life. God gave us the Bible because he wants to be known. He he wants to be in relationship with you and with me. He's a person and he has a story and he wants to be known by everyone. You see, the Bible, if you think about it, and if you read it, about two-thirds, maybe almost three-quarters of it, of the Bible is written in a narrative. It's written in a story-formed way. Where actually, when the Bible was written, very, very few people could actually read. And so mainly how the Bible was passed down and how the word of the story of God was passed down was through, through, through human history, was orally. Through a story, because, because God wants to be known, and so he revealed himself in a way that would make sense to most humans. Or actually, I want to say to all humans. Right? That we all speak that way. We all talk in story. And so the, the, story, the story of history is actually God's story. He's actually the author of history. He's actually the main character. And how we know that is if we look at the very beginning of the story with creation, creation begins and, and humans are created. We, we enter a story that has already begun. There's already a main character. There's already a setting. There's already action going on. And then humans enter the story. This should give us a clue that the story is not about us. That we are not the main characters. It was already happening and we were brought into the story. The main character is God and we were brought in to image Him. Humans were designed to show the world what God is like, to be His disciples. But if you know anything about the story, which I'm assuming most of you do, is that that got broken. And now we live in a culture that says the story is about us. It's about what we think. It's about what we do. It's about what I want to identify as or what I want to say I'm about and what, what I think defines me now. Which is why it's so important that we go back and we have the foundation of the Bible when we actually look at difficult topics and ideas and as we attempt to live this life of, of a disciple, we need the foundation to go back on and to rely on that gives us a lens to view the world around us. Because if we don't have the foundation of Scripture, our ideas will be quickly swayed. They'll be swayed by the opinions of others around us. We'll settle for the easiest thing, the most popular decision, the most politically correct opinion at the moment. You know that changes, don't you know? What was politically correct when I was younger um, is not politically correct anymore. And I can't say some of the things that I used to think were normal to say. And some of the things you think are normal to say won't be acceptable in a few years from now either. So the most politically correct opinion on how to view life and how to view the world around us is not the one that we need to look at first. Knowing God's story is so important and God wants you to know Him and He gave you the Scriptures so that you can. The Bible is is God's means of sharing His thoughts and his desires with us. I want to say the Bible is a, is a discipleship tool of God. It's a discipleship tool. 
From the day that God placed Adam in the garden, God has maintained a relationship with mankind and communicated with mankind. Communication with mankind has always been central to that relationship. And so when we open up the Bible, what we're actually doing is we're, we're engaging with God's communication to us. And he specifically has, has preserved 66 books so that we can know him better. And although the books are addressed to, to different people and different settings, everything in the Bible was ultimately written for your benefit and for mine. And for every human that ever walks this planet. If the Bible is indeed, as, as 2 Timothy says, breathed out from God, words delivered from God's mouth himself, then reading the Bible is actually listening to the voice of God. You ever thought about that? It's actually, we always like wait for this voice of God to like come down. But it's actually, he's already given you it. He's listening to the voice of God is when you open it. Every time we open the Bible, we have a chance to strengthen our relationship with God. If we approach the Bible with humility and actually eager to listen for God to speak to us, waiting to hear what, what he wants to say what he, rather than, than what we want to actually hear. Because I think that's how we often read it. We go back and we read it looking for something that we want to hear or like try to confirm one of our own opinions. When we read the Bible, we get to draw closer to the one that we were made to be in relationship with. And so the, the first like, goal of Bible study has to be intimacy with God. Intimacy with God, not just knowledge of God. Knowledge of God is important, and it's, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes, but it, that's only one piece of it. So I want to I begin by, by reading uh, 1 Chronicles. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Chronicles. And if you don't, you can look up on the screen. And if you come next week, you could bring one because um, it's kind of important. It's God's words. Or you can pull it up on your phone. It's very simple. You already have your phone in your pocket, probably, hopefully, unless you're checking to see who's getting on the NBA uh, watch list at the second, which none of you guys really think about, except for Brad, who's not here. Um, <laughs> it's pretty true, yeah. Anyway, First um, Chronicles 29, verse 11, uh, starting in verse 11. And this is David who's writing this, and uh, David was one of the greatest kings of all history, and this is what he writes. He says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. So I want to ask a question. If you're new with us, um, we do interact during this time. Um, and so I want to ask this question as you think about what these words of David just said. What is included in God's rule? Everything. Everything. Good. So that's the place to start. Everything is included in God's rule. I was hoping we'd get there first. Um, but let's list some of those things out. What's, what, what are some things? Your time. What else? Your purpose. Your meaning. Anyone besides Josh? Your riches. All your money. Yeah. What else? Your honor. Okay. Yeah, what else? Your job. Your workplace. Those, those things. Yeah. 
Your identity is listed under God's rule. Yeah, good. What else? Your sexuality is under God's rule. Yeah, what else? Satan is under God's rule. Yes. What else? Governments. Governments. Our government is under God's rule. Yeah. What's that? Our friendships, our relationships are under God's rule. Yeah. What else? Our cities. Our city. Yeah. Our plans. Your plans, the things that you desire and that you want to do, your plans are under God's rule. Our successes and failures. Mm-hmm. Your successes and failures. Discipleship, your children. Yeah. Everything that you're angry about, that you're frustrated about, that you think is broken, is still under God's rule. Your time is under God's rule. Yeah. We could go on and on because the reality is we can list everything that you ever think of is under God's rule. Proverbs 21.30 says this, There is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord. Basically, no one can discredit what he says. Job 23, says, uh, verse 13 says this, But he is unchangeable. Who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. What this means is that all God designs to do, all that he decrees, he actually performs. All that he says is actually true. That God is supreme over all things. That his supremacy doesn't even need to seek counsel. He doesn't have to go and say, let me take some advice on this. Let me try to figure out how to rule over this or what to do. No, he already is supreme over it. He's he's supremely wise in how he's orchestrating all things for his purpose. If you look back over the story of God found in the Bible, he demonstrates his supremacy in some some crazy, amazing ways. Some crazy things happen in in the Bible if you actually read it. Um, In Numbers chapter 22, God uses a donkey to speak to his prophet so that he would actually follow his ways. When I was thinking about that this morning, I'm like, well, then God can use me, right? Like, and God can use you. He used a donkey. He can speak through you. In Exodus 14, God commands the Red Sea to be divided. Water stands up like walls and the muddy, wet, dry bottom gets dried up instantly and his people walk across. In Joshua 10, God commands the sun to stand still, to stop time. He stops time. We're watching Infinity War last night and right, like the little time stone, like God can do that. I know, like he's way bigger than that, right? But, But he did that so that God... So God's people could win against their enemies. In Isaiah 38, God shows himself to be supreme over all things by casting a shadow backwards. When Victoria was really little, um, she tells me not to tell any more stories of her, but I'm going to tell one anyway. Because she's back in kids today and she doesn't know. Um, so don't tell her, but you can. It's all good. When Victoria was little, she, we were walking um, to the pool um, like neighborhood pool, and like we're walking down the street, and all of a sudden she just starts like freaking out, like like horrific screams, like someone's trying to kill her. And we're trying to figure out what is going on. And she had seen her shadow following her, and she was deathly afraid that her shadow was going to like get her. Right? She was afraid of her shadow. But can you imagine like if the sun was the opposite direction, your shadow was going the wrong way? 
That's what God can do. He's supremely over like making the shadow cast itself backwards. God uses birds to feed his prophets. He makes axes float on top of water that were sunk underneath so that people could continue to do what he calls them to do. God closes the mouths of lions that don't eat people. He causes fire not to burn people as they're thrown into it. God does whatever he wants. He's supremely ruling over all things. If you read this story, it's amazing. In Psalm 135, 6, it says this, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. Daniel 2, 21 says, God changes times and seasons, and he removes kings and sets up kings. In Proverbs 21, it tells us the same thing. A king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God is supremely ruling over all things and all rulers. He's in charge of who becomes our next president in two years from now. He's ruling in China and in North Korea and in Iran and every country right now. The fact that that God is ruling over the rulers over this world doesn't mean that every government or every person lives obedient to him or obedient Christian life pleases him. Rather, God often ordains and arranges things that don't please him completely so that we would see him as, as the one who's actually wise and gracious compared to the sin and folly of human leadership. Because the reality is that no matter how good or how bad a ruler may be or a government may be, they will always fail us. And they will always point us to our need of someone else to rule over every area of life. Because God is actually the only one who has the power to bring about change in the world and in your life and in mine. I say all these things about the supremacy of God because what that means is that his words are supreme as well. That what he says in the Bible actually spans time. It spans culture and should inform our view of life. Perhaps one of the strongest things we can say about the Bible, and I've said this before, is that it's the word of God. Ever thought what that means? That concept should blow your minds. And when we're talking about the Bible, we're actually talking about something the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the the transcending God decided to write to you and to me. What could be more important than that? Imagine how you would respond if if you actually heard a voice from heaven came down to you in your bedroom as you're sleeping and spoke directly to you. You would probably get up and do what it said. Right? The other day I was talking with someone and I get to do this um, because they asked me how, I, how you became a pastor. And so I usually have, that's an easy in for me, right? When they say, how did you become a pastor? I was like, well, you ask, so you're going to get it now, right? So I got the chance to actually share the gospel. And I told my whole story and how God rescued me and how God changed my path and how God, Jesus is the one who actually gives me peace and gives me joy and how all the things that I looked for in my life I found empty, and all the things in our culture that, that say are going to provide you peace and joy and, and have, have failed. And, and that spawned some other questions as we were talking, and we got on the subject of the Bible actually being true and actually being the foundation of, of all we know about God and how it informs our view of life, to which they were like blown away 
They were like, you believe the entire Bible? Like, all of it? I was like, yeah, actually I do. Right? Like, we talked about what were the ramifications of that if we don't, if we don't believe all of it. You see, the majority of our culture, and I want to say even many Christians, have this understanding of Scripture that is just a mixed bag of things. It has some relevant stuff and some stuff that helps you kind of give you a, a good moral compass, but, but some of it's irrelevant as well. We've progressed past those teachings. We, we, we should just take the good and the bad and throw out what we don't like and what we do like. So I want to ask you, if that's, if that's, if that's how what we think, if that's the result, what's the result of, of actually believing that you can view and pick and choose what's true and what's not true to apply to your life as you look at the scriptures? What's the result of that? Of picking whatever you want. Saying some of it's good and some of it's not. You're challenging God's supremacy. Okay, you're challenging God's supremacy. Okay, good. It makes you God. Okay? He must have been wrong. He must have been wrong. He, he, he only got a few things right. Hmm. What else? It puts everything up for grabs. So your words and your thoughts are supreme, and now you get to pick and choose. Yeah. It makes us inconsistent. It makes us inconsistent. Yeah, for sure. We have one person who says they follow Jesus that looks like this and says this is true. We have another person who follows Jesus and says this is true. And so there's inconsistency across his disciples. Good. Yeah. It's unconvincing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Let me ask the other question. If we, if we don't think that view is correct, and we really believe that, that the Bible is the Word of God, how do you think that view would actually change you if you believe that? Yeah, it's going to be different than what the culture says about us, and it's going to take some response or change in us. Yeah, good. What else? It's going to take faith because you're going to proclaim things you can't necessarily see or prove. Yeah, it's going to take faith that God is actually supreme. What else? Yeah, it'll make you humble. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to take us looking at our life and like, man, that's, I'm a mess over here. Yeah. What else? I think it also takes the, um, you have to be able to admit that you're not going to be able to understand it all. God hasn't necessarily revealed everything to us, and so it's not always going to measure up well with the human brain. That takes faith as well. Yeah, there's times when we're going to say, I don't understand this, but I believe you're true, and I'm going to have to walk in that. Yeah. And make him more visible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, keeps us dependent on Him. Yeah, I would say it would be something that, that we're not just going to become familiar with, but it's going to be something that actually shapes our every aspect of our existence. Something that guides every decision that we make in life. How we were actually intentional in being a disciple of Jesus. Yeah. Second Peter 1.3 says this, that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. What this is saying is that through the knowledge of God, through reading his words, we gain everything we need for godly living. You gain everything you need to live the life of the disciple as you read God's words. Whatever motivations you might have for, for studying the Bible, godly living needs to be at the top of that list. We study because we want to know God, but we study because we want to be godly, and godly means imaging God in the everyday things of life. I mentioned this scripture earlier, but 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture literally is breathed out of God. And although we know that, that human authors wrote down the books, God himself is ultimately the source of those words. His supreme authority was written down and revealed in the pages of the Bible. And make sure you don't miss this. There's a purpose statement in here why Paul includes it, that why Scripture is breathed out of God. He said that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So why did God give us the Bible? So that we would know Him, but so that we would also be complete, so that we'd be mature people, so we would be equipped and ready to do anything that God asked us to do. This means that when we actually study the Bible, we, we look to see how that informs us with the purpose of change. With the purpose of change. Hebrews 4.12 says this, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of souls and of spirits, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, although we, we primarily think of the Bible as something that we read in order to gain knowledge, we've actually got that backwards. The Bible actually reads us. It penetrates to our core and exposes who we really are so that we would change and so that we would image God more. It's not about finding out support for your lifestyle or for our way of thinking. It's about approaching the mind of God and letting Him change us and redefine who we are. We must continually come back to God's story to realign our hearts so that we would know His truth and we would live in God's truth in the everyday things of life. One of the things that we've talked about when we thought about this series is that we want to give you some, some practical tools or some handles to help walk out this life of being disciples. And so each week there's going to be drawings to help you remember some of these truths. And we may have a whiteboard alley sometimes, but my handwriting is so bad I'm not going to use it probably. Um, so... We made some slides. I don't know if they're going to be up there. Are we got them, Daniel? Okay, good. Um, and so I want to give you 
uh, just kind of a diagram to help you think about God's story. And this comes from um, some of our friends in Arizona. Chris Gonzalez and Kevin Platt put these symbols together to help remember God's story and help, help us share it with other people. They call it the, the napkin drawings, and, and you can draw this on a napkin on a little post-it note when you're at work or wherever you may be. And basically, these are six symbols that help identify the six acts of God in, in God's divine drama. And you can use these in, in many different ways, telling, you know, in different time lengths. You know, you, you can do it in 30 seconds. You can do it in three minutes. You can do it in 15 minutes. It depends on how much time you have to share with someone, how many details of the story you can get in. And so um, that's the whole drawing up there. But we're, I'm going to just do one at a time, um, but it's all good. So act one is creation. It's the first little arrow. God created a perfect world where, where there was no shame. There was, there was perfect relationship with God and with humans and with all of the earth. And it's, it's the perfect world that, that everyone imagines. It's the, the, the beauty queen's dream where there's peace on earth, right? And it's, it's where everything is perfect. And if you ask someone, what, what would they, how would they describe a world if everything, if they could, do, they could do it themselves? It's what they describe, a perfect creation. But act two, we know that there was rebellion. God gives man how to live in this, and man chooses self-rule over God rule. And there's a broken relationship with God. That's Genesis actually 3 through 11. The first one is Genesis 1 and 2. Um, And out of that brokenness, out of that rebellion, God gives a promise. This is the next stage where God promises to restore the brokenness, to send someone who will fix the brokenness and restore the relationship that was broken because of man choosing self-rule over God's supreme rule. And as we go through the Bible, we see that promise get extended through people over and over and over again. And you can tell as many stories as you want through here. There's Genesis 12 through Malachi. You've got plenty of stories to tell in there, right? Um, you can talk about Abraham, and God picks him, and he, he takes the nation of Israel. And we can talk about David, etc., all the people. But what we see in that promise is that humans continually fail, that God himself is only going to be the one that's able to keep this promise, to keep the covenant. And so Act 4, what happens is, um, is the Gospels, right? You can put that up there. Jesus comes down from in the form of man. That God comes in the form of man, in the form of Jesus, and Jesus lives the perfect life, and he dies the death that we deserved from the brokenness that we caused. And Jesus not only lives that life, but and not only dies, but he rises from the dead. That's a very important part. Make sure that you talk about him rising from the dead. Please, you can clap for that. If he doesn't rise from the dead, there's no reason for us to talk. Right? He defeats death, and so humans can once again be in relationship with God. And so we find out in in the fifth act that that as Jesus returns to heaven, and this is the acts and the epistles where God promises that he's going to return and he commissions his church, his people, to be his disciples, to tell the world his story, to walk in his ways. That's where we live right here and right now, where we're, we're committed to being disciples of Jesus and telling others of his story. But it doesn't end there. 
The, the good news is that in Revelation 21 and 22, at the end of the age, where the mission and purpose of the church really reaches its conclusion, the name of Jesus will be sounded around the world. That Jesus will return and that every name, at that name, every knee will bow, whether angels in heaven or are living on the earth or dead under the earth, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's, what, that's the good news, right? And on that day, both believers and unbelievers will acknowledge that Jesus is actually supreme, that he has triumphed over every enemy. Believers will acknowledge that and will be ushered into everlasting joy, and unbelievers will be ushered into everlasting shame outside of relationship with the one who actually has power to save. You see, Jesus desires so much to be Lord of your life that he died for that purpose so that you might be saved, so that you might be changed, you might be brought back into relationship where you would acknowledge him as the supreme Lord. You see, the good news about supremacy and God's supremacy is that, and his word is that although he is is over all and although he's ruling over all things and he has the power to cause all things to do his will, God does not just dwell in some high place of high mighty over everyone because God loves to exalt and give favor to the humble. Psalm 138 says this, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. You see, no greater picture has ever been seen of this than the person of Jesus. God the Father in his infinite delight in the Son because the Son esteemed the Father so highly because he chose to die the worst death And rather than than forsake the Father's assignment, he chooses to die. And God loves to exalt the humble. You see, Jesus didn't just talk about these things. He just didn't teach it. Jesus was a living example of what it meant to walk humbly before God. That Jesus always did the will of the Father. That he was obedient even to the point of death. And so it's very fitting that that the one who humbled himself the most deeply, the one whose obedience caused the greatest imaginable self-denial, would be most highly by God, would be most highly exalted by God himself. And to know Jesus is more valuable than knowing the most famous person in this city, or the most powerful person in history, or the most powerful person that you could ever think of. To be known and loved by God through Jesus is greater honor than if all the heads of every country would come to you right now and bow down in your presence and say, Matt Noble, what should I do? And you would just say, bloop, 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 do that. It's more important than that. When this world is over and we stand before the Almighty God, nothing else will matter. Only Jesus being Lord of your life will matter. Nothing else. Nothing else that you ever think about or can accomplish. And can I tell you that Jesus desperately wants to be Lord in all areas of your life. There is no time or place or activity or daily routine where Jesus does not want to be the owner of it, to be the provider of it, to be supreme over the way that you live it. 
And so what is our response to that? What's our response to Jesus being Lord, being the supreme one who makes himself known through the supremacy of his words? The answer is two things. We confess and we worship. Because really the reality is that, that what or who we worship says with a loud voice who we think is supremely Lord. And who we're going to actually disciple people in is who you worship. Whenever we look to something for significance or acceptance or approval or satisfaction or fulfillment or joy or security, that very act is worship. We're ascribing worth to something. We're saying, that thing will make me significant. That person will make me acceptable. That thing or that person will give me security. This will save me. This is supreme in my life. The life of a disciple of Jesus who we're going to continue to talk about is one where we continue to call each other to walk in faith and to turn from sin and to turn from, from living and serving lesser things and call us to worship God alone, to align our hearts and our actions with what our theology of Jesus is actually, that he is actually Lord of life that we would then confess all areas of our life where we've looked to other things and other people to be Lord, to be supreme, the one who's ruling, evident by the way that I act and the way that I think. To be a person who confesses and turns back to worshiping the true Lord often. Because the good news of the cross is that our sin of putting other things as Lord over, over our life no longer calls us to hide in shame and in sorrows, but allows us to rejoice in the hope that we now have in Jesus. That when we confess, it becomes a beautiful picture of our desperate need of Jesus. That every time we recognize the sin in our life and the, and the shame that he's covered, and that we confess that to him, and then we confess that to one another, he is seen as more gracious and more gracious and more gracious, and that brings in more glory and more glory and more glory. And anywhere that there's brokenness in this world or in your life, it's because something or someone other than Jesus is supremely ruling. And the good news is that even though my sin is really a cause for sorrow. Jesus' work on the cross makes me a new creation. It gives me a new identity. It makes me a part of a new family. I'm joint heirs with Jesus over the kingdom of God. I have a father who's ruling as the king of the universe. I no longer have to hide in sin or fear or shame or rejection because I've already been accepted by the supreme ruler. Amen. That's good news. Great, I'm free to turn from serving lesser gods and worship the true God. To confess that Jesus is the only one worth serving. And not just on a Sunday morning where we confess that, but throughout every day, all day long, in all areas of my life that we would confess that in the everyday things of life that Jesus is Lord, that he's supreme, and that I worship him, that I ascribe worth to him, and I allow him to be the Lord over all areas of my life and your life. And there's power and there's freedom in that. And there's grace in that when he's actually Lord. That we get to recognize as his disciples who he truly is. That we get to live under his story 
and not under our story or any other story that our culture wants to feed us. That's the life of a disciple who continues to go back and makes God supreme. And we continue to go back to his story and we continue to go back to his words to make sure and to figure out and to find out how do you want me to live this way? How am I supposed to make you supreme in all these things? What, what do you say about this subject? What do you say about this part of my life? And so as a family, I want to call us to make the Bible vitally important in your life, to make reading it important, to make it something that, that we don't just think about, but that we actually value. And we say, man, if I don't get some time reading his words and seeing what God has to say to me, how can I even get up this day? How can I even walk into work? How can I continue to go to bed? Unless I understand God's words, who he's communicated to us through his story and through the person of Jesus. So as we, as we spin that out, I want, then the more that you know that, the more that you're going to share that with others. And the more that that tool of, of just the napkin drawings of just six acts of God the more that you understand that, the more you'll be able to communicate that and disciple others in it and be able to tell how God's story is greater than any other story that everyone else wants to live under. So, Father, we thank you that you are supreme. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us alone to figure it out, but that you gave us your word, that you give us your story so that we may know you, so that we may have intimate relationship with you and that so that we may know how to walk this life of a disciple. Father, we thank you that you are so gracious with us. Father, we confess that we often, probably 90% of the time, don't walk this way. Father, we pray that you would change us, that you would mature us, that you would grow us in the deep desire of you being supreme in all areas of life. Father, pray that you would make, make us disciples that that think about and dream about and actually live in those things in the everyday, that we would worship you, that we would turn from lesser gods, that we would turn from lesser stories that we want to live our life under, and that we would confess and we'd walk in faith a new way. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus, that he came and that he died and that he rose again, that he actually defeated death and that he gives us a new life. Father, we thank you for making us anew, for making us your disciples. And Father, I pray that that those um, of us in this room that don't believe that or don't understand that, that you would, you would convict our hearts, that you would move, that you would reveal yourself, that you would call us into a deep understanding of you. Father, we pray that for this city as well. Father, this city is full of so many people who are living under a terrible story, a story that's oppressive, a story that has no hope, a story that has no end. Father, we get to live in the good news of knowing the ending. That you are going to return. That you're going to, to rebuild this world. And that we get to live in a new world, in a new heaven, with all, for all eternity in relationship with you, once again having you be the supreme ruler of our life, of every area of our life. And so, Father, as we, as we know the end of that, Father, I pray that you would make us people that walk in that now, that show just a glimpse of how much you can restore and how good you are. Father, we thank you that you have the power to do that and that you call us into that and that you actually will do that in our lives. 
So, Father, we pray that you would move in a special way this year. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.